0: Hello and welcome to episode 8 in the Masters of the World series looking back on the history of the BDO World Masters. This time I'm delighted to be joined by the Prince of Style, Rod Harrington. Rod won the World Masters in 1991 and he later went on to win the World Match Play twice. He was a long time number one in the PDC and he's now a PDC Hall of Famer and commentator. Enjoy. I'm now delighted to be joined by the PDC Hall of Famer and two-time World Match Play champion, Rod Harrington. How are you, Rod?
1: Yes, I'm very well, thanks. Well, if you can be in the world today, <laughs> what's going
0: on. I was going to say, it's been a very weird year. How's 2020 been for you? Well, I think
1: it's been weird for everybody. It's um, it, it, It's been not emotional, but it's, I suppose in one way, I'm glad that I'm in the position I am as in more or less semi-retired and set myself up in life uh, many, many years ago before I even started playing darts. Um, But it's, you know, when you see what's going on and you see everybody, you know, the way it's going to be hardship for everybody, it's quite, you know, upsetting at times. Um, You know, we've all done what, what we try to do, you know, I've been, I've got a van, and a couple of times I've filled it up with food and taken to the food banks. I've done a few other things. Um, you know, I think everybody's got to do their bit because I think it will take a good few years for us to to get out of this. It's been a war. I mean, we've just had Remembrance Day, um, you know, and, and all were fallen in the wars, and uh, we're in a war now.
0: Looking back to to the start of your career, when was it that you actually first started playing darts?
1: you know, when I was, I call it courting. everybody takes a mickey out of me, all the youngsters at the PDC. There's when I first met my wife and back in them days, I come from a little village, still live in the village, and used to go down the local pub. And the girls used to sit there having a chat and the boys used to play darts. So I started playing darts then and then, you know, we played for the, the, the pub teams, a couple of pubs in the village and then moved on to the Super League and then played a little bit of county back, um, back then when I was, you know, 20 to 25, I suppose, um, but then, you know, got married, had children, so I didn't throw darts again until I took over a bar. Um, and to drum up trade, we, um, we started up dart teams. Um, and so started playing then. Um, and then Kevin Painter's mate walked in my pub and um, was mouthing it off that his mate was the best dart player I ever walked. So I told him to walk back in in a month's time, and I'll play it for 500 quid. And Kevin Painter walked back in my pub. I beat him, then we had a rematch, and he beat me, and uh, we stayed friends ever since, and uh, we started practising together and going to tournaments together, so, you know, chance meetings in life um, are what, you know, take you down certain roads, and that certainly was one
0: of them. The first senior title for you came in 1987 when you won the, the Double Diamond Masters, what are your memories of that event? Well,
1: it was actually, it was actually the John Ball Masters, and uh, ironically enough... Only two days ago, uh, it, it came up in an email to me or something, so I put it on and I actually me and my wife sat there on my laptop and, <laughs> and watched bits of it, which was quite strange. You've just brought that up. You know, I played a bloke called Steve Carlisle I was was renowned for being a prolific scorer back then, but missing doubles, but I got over the line. And then, of course, I played Eric for double money and beat Eric, you know, all to Eric 5,000 pounds, which back... Back then, was an awful lot of money, and we, we hadn't had the house long, so it, it was really handy. And that was when I thought, well, you know, I've got the game, I've got the bottle. So um, that was when I started to think about doing it professionally. Mm.
0: It wasn't a title that necessarily brought great riches or whatever, but it was a hugely respected title. The Gold Cup, you won that in 1990, and it was a difficult title to win, so that must have meant a lot when you beat Bob Anderson.
1: Yeah, yes, it was. And I beat Phil Taylor in the semis. I mean, uh, to get to the Gold Cup, then I had to win my Super League team, then win my county, and then obviously you go where all the other counties are. So every single player you play from from game one is a good, solid player. Um, but at the time, um, I was playing well. I'd I just flown. Well, I'd flown uh, two weeks earlier. I'd flown out to Austria and won three tournaments in Austria. The, the pairs, the singles and the soft tip singles flew from there straight to Jersey and won the singles um, there, beating Phil Taylor 3 0 in the final. And then I flew straight in the, to the Airport. My brother picked me up and we went straight up to Stoke for the Gold Cup. And, you know, I was already on a high then and and, and I could beat anybody. And of course, when I beat Phil Taylor, then I beat Bob Adams in the final. And funny enough, that day, me and Kevin Painter lost in the final of the pairs, so I could have doubled it. To Glenn Hackett and Dennis Priestley and Kev had two darts at double eighteen no double sixteen to win that. So yeah, the Gold Cup was was one of those tournaments you won back then and, and then everybody knew who you were because you no mug ever won the gold cup. You had to be a brilliant player game on game. So um yeah, that that was when I I really
0: arrived, I think. 1991 you won the World Masters but before we talk about that I mean you going into that you'd won multiple floor titles you'd won the French Open the Danish Open Belgium Open Sweden Open why did those floor tournaments suit you so well throughout your career? I
1: was fit and strong telling our players now um and and now it's i don't, I don't think it's any coincidence that girl in price is the best performing player in the world at the moment he's the fittest and the strongest i was fit and strong always have been all my life i've been a sportsman still am now work out in some way every day um and of course you have not hit the tournaments where there's thousands of people um you know and come five six o'clock at night when you're still down the last 16 last 32 um, I was the fittest and the strongest. I, you know, most of the time I won because I was the best player in the day. But there were tournaments without question that I won, not because I was the best player in the day, because I was the strongest. And coming those late stages in the game, I could hit my concentration. I loved games uh, here and there, and then went on to win. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I went. It's star, I think I went 94 games, uh, singles games without defeat, coming into that, and that World Masters made it 94. Went into the British Open and actually Kevin, uh, Keith Della ruined my career in the first, <laughs> no, career, uh, ruined my run in the, the last 16 of the British Open, I think. But the World Masters was another tough one. Like, you know, back then you had to start off, you know, winning your county and then you go forward to all them. Um, I think the BDO ruined it when they seeded the tournament. It, it kind of ruined it because it, it, it weren't what it was supposed to be. But then, you know, I beat Phil Taylor in a final and I just want to mention that when I beat Phil Taylor in the final, something happened for the very first time, and I hadn't witnessed it before. Um, I, I was two sets to kneel down, one leg down, and Phil Taylor just wanted one more leg. And I remember looking to the right-hand side of the stage where a, a very good friend of mine, he called Steve Pegram, still is, works for the PDC still, um, used to come around with me then, uh, exceptional driver for me then. Um, and he just put his finger up and went, one leg at a time, one leg at a time. And I could hear him. As if he was whispering it in my ear roll. So, other sportsmen will understand this, and other dart players will obviously. I went into a concentration mode, and it weren't until I heard Freddie Williams call Game Shot and the Championship, and I looked at double top, and all I could see were these big, thorough flights in double top. And it weren't until then that I realised that it was actually I'd won the tournament. And I couldn't recollect any game, any dart, any leg that I'd flown from when I see Steve Pegram put his finger up. A little bit frightening when that happened because I, I couldn't understand it, but then, you know, realised that that's what the, the Americans called him the zone and what have you. It happened another couple of times in my career, but it doesn't happen very often to anybody. Um, but that was the first time, and it, it kind of frightened me, and, um, you know, beating Phil Taylor in the final again, which I did quite often back then, to be quite honest, um, was, was something special for me. Mm.
0: And I mean, I watched that game back the other day and it was quite interesting. Tony Green on commentary said something when you went ahead for the first time in that final set. The way he spoke, it was almost as if you were sort of an unknown quantity and, and so on. Did that suit you, in a sense, being an underdog?
1: No, I didn't care. You know, uh, and again, something I keep telling all the dark players and my son, you believe in your own ability. Phil Taylor is brilliant at forgetting what's gone on in the past. You know, you lost that leg, doesn't matter. You can't change the past, but you can certainly change the future. And back then, I, I had um, this air of people used to call me arrogant. I don't know why. but You know, I always thought, well, you know, I've got this scoring power. I can hit one eight for fun. Back then, so yeah, you may win that leg, but I'm still, I'm going to smash you. That was what I had in my head back then for a good number of years as well. So uh, no, it didn't worry me that they classed me as the underdog. I mean, you know, I was top of the county averages and what have you and then um, my county didn't even put me forward for England and I was number 10 in the world at the time so but that didn't worry me it didn't worry me one bit bit I just carried on it was a business to me it was a way of uh, adding more income um, to my household and my wife and kids so I just I just got on with it
0: and I think one thing I noticed when watching that game back, obviously in later years, you know, you were known as the Prince of Style when you had the, the shirt and the waistcoat, whereas then you were sporting quite a fetching turquoise polo shirt. So when did the, the change in attire and nickname come for you?
1: Well, the, the actual, um, I won, I won a, um, a tournament called the John Ball Masters. No, the, yeah, no sorry, the, the Cockney Classic was when I beat Eric, sorry. The John Masters. Was, was my first one and if you ever look at that I wore a tie in that and then a, a guy called Brian Richel who ran the pub that I represented back then when I went to the world championships for the first time he said why don't you wear a tie and I said to Steve Pegg I ain't doing that anyway I was in the platform and Steve brought it in and I went okay and so I wore it for the, the, the time TV for the very first time I think it was against Pascal uh, in that first world title i played at lakeside and then i got a contract the very next morning from it from a company called leuven sport who did um softed dartboards but they wanted me to wear a tie and of course i was slim and strong then you know i was on the building as well um so that's where it started and, and the name the princess dale come from um oh i caller at the time his name will come to me he died not long ago he moved out to uh, vegas um and, and he gave me that, and I hated it. I absolutely detested it, and I actually still hate it. But it fitted at the time, and, and there weren't a great deal of money around, so being called that, you know, kind of pissed people off who apply me who think they're, who you think you are. And uh, but it made me very noticeable um, to promote myself, so it, it stayed, and I, I went along with it.
0: Well, obviously, you you know you sported the tie at the lake. Said, what are, what are your other memories from that first appearance on the iconic lakeside stage?
1: I I, remember, I don't know. If it was, I only played there twice. I don't know. I should have, I felt that was my, my best chance. We could gamble then, and I and I put half my first round losers' money on myself uh, to win it. Um, and I lost to Mike Gregory in the quarterfinals after having two darts at double sixteen to beat him and beating four to one. I think it was, and he went on to obviously have an epic game against Phil Taylor in the final. Um, yeah, I remember. I remember losing him, and I think I played Keith Sullivan in that. Um, <laughs> excuse me, in that um, last 16, and the very last leg, I went 180, 171, left 150, and I remember contemplating going for three bullseyes. I didn't because I wanted to win the leg because that was the leg that, that beat Keith Sullivan, the Australian, who was an extremely good player back then. Um, and I closed the game out in 12, 12 darts, so it's funny how you can remember, I can't remember what I did yesterday, but, you, you know, when you think about things, I can remember that leg uh, quite, quite vividly.
0: The following year Lakeside, so you went out in the first round to another Aussie, uh, Wayne Weaning and
1: Wayne Weening. yeah, I see him quite often, and he's always, when I go to Australia, he's always saying that, yeah, he took out 220s on the trot. I missed loads of doubles, uh, and I was playing well coming into that as well, I just couldn't hit a double. and. The last two legs, he hit a 120 after me, half a dozen darts, a double. He did the same next leg to beat me. Yeah, fair play to the big Aussie. Um, nice guy, really good guy. Uh, didn't want to argue with him, he's too big anyway. <laughs> uh, but uh, no, I mean, and that happens. And that, that was one of those learning curves where you think, you know, I got a bit frustrated early on, I think, because I was missing. Them. But you walk away from that and you go, okay, um, you have to forget about it and get on with in the rest of your life, or, or if you dwell on it, you keep losing more games. So I just forgot about it and got on
0: with it. I mean, obviously that that tournament, you know, holds a special place in history because it was the last, the last Lakeside before the split. Was being part of the sixteen an easy decision for you?
1: It actually was. I was the last one to sign on, which was the, uh, the WDC at the time. Um, it, you know, everything was coming around. Um, I was being approached by Dick Ellis, Tommy Cox. And my wife was with me, and uh, I got a phone call from Mr. Croft to go to his room to pick up my expenses, which is pittance, really. Um, so I went there, and I told my wife to come with me, because I had a feeling of what was going on, and it was like a it was like a courtroom. I walked in, the three boys were standing there, and he, the three wives were standing behind him, so Molly Croft, Dave Alderman, and Sam Hawkins were there. and you know, I used to get on well the with them all, You know, they did a great job for Darcy, you can't ever take that away. And... Um, Dave Alden said, if you, ever, if you sign on with the WDC, you'll never throw another dart in the world, we'll ban you, we'll do this, we'll do that. No one threatened me in those days. And then I said to him, you ain't threatening me. Because darts, well, darts weren't my main living then. I still had five, six bloke work for me on the building, I owned a bar, so I was earning decent money. Um, so I walked out of there and as I walked down the corridor, Dick Alex come up the other side. So he got a bit of paper, he, he opened his briefcase on the corridor, give it to me. I crossed out the five clauses that they wanted, and he said, I can't, can't accept that unless you put the clauses in. I said, then I don't sign. And he said, don't tell anybody. So I was actually the only person that crossed out all five of the clauses then and signed for the, um, the, the WDC. Of course, it's the best thing that ever happened.
0: Was there ever a fear for you that it, it wouldn't all work out?
1: Oh, absolutely. Loads of times. I mean, I started representing the players. and was going to every single uh, meeting. All over the country, every single meeting, and there was times when we were absolutely skint. You know, we, we we couldn't even find prize money. Um, you know, we, it, it was really you thinking, "Ah, look, let's hold our hands up and just quit." Um, but we didn't. We had people like Tommy Cox. I mean, he was a rock Tommy Cox. He weren't going to let go. Um, you know, Big Alex, was, was. they were so adamant that they were going to do the right thing. Of course, behind that, I had a, a very good friend of mine at the time, Paul around, you know, thorough darts. You know, they were all, people don't understand that all the manufacturers got together before ever the, any player signed up. And they approached the BDO to get more TV, dart, darts on TV. And they didn't want it. They, they were happy to do what they did because they had their earnings out of it. They had their little holidays at the holiday camp. So that was when the manufacturers, you know, started it up. Uh, you know, a couple of manufacturers, Windmere and Harrows, went back to BDO. That, that's the way it was. Um, you know, you've got to look after your own business. Uh, blame them for that. Um, so you know, it, it it was quite it was hard hard work for me, knowing the position that Dart was in at the WDC, and we didn't have any money because if I'd have told players, there were there were players that were playing both sides of the fence at the time. There's no question about that. And I don't mind saying that. I'm not going to mention who it is, but there were players playing both sides of the fence. I knew who they were. And so I couldn't go back and tell them because all of a sudden, Mike Gregory and Chrissy Johns went back early, if anybody else, uh, we would have folded. So I stayed strong. And um, that's why I, I... When Barry Hearn took over, he asked me to come and do what I did because I couldn't throw darts anymore. And that's why... Tommy and Dick Alex, Tommy Cox, dear, dear old Tommy's not with us, and Dick Alex um, stayed friends with all the time, uh, close friends as well. A lot of respect for those two. And of course the manufacturers that um, stayed with us.
0: What was your reaction when, when Mike Gregory and Chrissy Johns decided to, to go back to the BDO?
1: Well, I was actually at the solicitor's office when uh, Mike Gregory phoned up the solicitor, And he put it on open call and I was speaking to Mike. And he said, I'm not going to lose my bungalow for anybody. Tony Green had been on the phone to him and said they were just about to win the court case and they're going for damages and they're going to take everybody's houses. And that was what then people, Tony Green was like. He threatened people like that. And I said, Mike, they can't do that. The solicitor said, Mike, they can't do that. He said, I'm not doing it. And they, they had offered him so much to go back because they thought that he was going to spit us all up. But what I didn't realise that, and actually, in actual fact, Mike Gregory were the biggest name at the time. You know, if it had been an Eric or a John Lowe, you know, or a Phil Taylor or Dennis Priestley, that may have hurt us. But it was Mike Gregory who, in fact, it didn't matter about. Him. So, you know, Chris had gone, well, you know, well, a massive name either, not being too disrespectful for two of them, but they were the bare facts. Mm. And so, you know, no one took any notice of it and we carried on.
0: And I mean, how was that, you know, that first PDC World Championship in 1994?
1: Well, we're dragging people off the streets. I mean, I was in Essex. I was asked to go around. Um, I went around and done all the labbrook shops to, um, you know, drum it up. I was going around the pubs and clubs and saying to the landlords and landladies, if you turn up with 10 people, you two can come in the closure and I'll get you to meet Phil Taylor or Eric Bristow, John Lowe, just to get people in. It was It was incredible there just weren't no one watching. You know Sky done a great job to make it look so good. But um, yeah we were struggling as we did with every tournament because you know the BDO banned anybody to come and watch us. If you come and watch us, you'll never play darts in the BDO setup again. They were even. I mean, Dennis Smith they even told his partner Lynn that if she went and watched her own husband, her own partner at the time, um, she wouldn't play county. I mean what sort of crap is that? So we were up against it and uh, you know,
0: we come for it. Later that year, 1994, you made the, the semis at the World Match and You played in a, a third place playoff. And I asked Peter Everson this a, a couple of weeks ago. What were those third place playoffs nights to play in? They were
1: hard work. They, they, were very, they were hard work until you walked on stage, you know, because you'd just lost in the semi final and, and you'd so down. And the, the next day, you'd got to get out and play a semi final, which was meaningless although we did put an extra little bit of prize money on our extra couple of ranking points but as soon as i walked on stage oh no i was 100 serious
0: you know and
1: and i and i doubt anybody's professionalism that that didn't do the same Peter, Peter was a great player back then one of the best great player to practice with as well which i did quite often um but once i got on stage no i was totally focused totally focused
0: the following year, you became world number one for the for the first time. Do you remember the, the moment that got you to the, the top of the ranking table? No, I, I don't. I
1: don't know what tournament it was, but I was on the verge of it for, for a while. And, I was, you know, the way I was playing, the way I was racing up the rankings, it was going to come. But, no, I don't remember the tournament that that finally done
0: it, no. You did being world number one in the, the WDC, did that make a difference to the amount of money you were able to bring in or was it still things very challenging? No,
1: it, it was still the same. I mean, I... I, I the world number one in the PDO system just before the split happened. i got to world number one in the PDO and the WDF uh, and the BDO rankings. So you know, it wasn't actually the first time, but the, that was the first time in the WDF. Um, but it, it was a, it was a struggle back then because we couldn't do exhibitions because no one was turning up. At and so pubs and clubs were cancelling. I was still working on the building, you know, still running the bar. So that was the way it was. Mm. Um, it, it was tough for everybody.
0: Nineteen ninety eight. You know, you went into the, the world match play on you know the back of a number of singles wins. You'd retain a Golden Harvest. You won the Swiss Open. You won over in Calgary as well. So were you confident going over to the Winter Gardens?
1: Yeah, I was. Yeah, I, was I was the best player in the world at that time. I was world number one. And I was winning <laughs> tournaments. I mean, I'd beaten Phil in the Danish Open, the Calgary, and into Saskatoon, which was the biggest payday of the year. That was uh, I'd beaten him uh, numerous times and everybody else. So... Yeah, I was coming into it, you know, at the top of my game and at the top of confidence as well.
0: One of the, the games in that tournament, you played Gary Mawson and beat him, you know, 8-0. What was that like when you came off and obviously, you know, he'd been whitewashed? Yeah, I mean,
1: I knew Gary, lovely guy, only for a long time, still, still going we see him in... in... Canada, in Canada or America, still come up and chat with him and his wife, he, you know, he's a real nice guy, but I, I you know, I didn't care who I was playing, I played the room partner there once, uh, Kevin Spoiler in the first round, just told him I was going to thrash him, you know, we, we agreed to double up uh, before the event, drew in the first round, um, still roomed him. you know, and beat him, it didn't worry me, once you walk on that stage, if you've got any doubts or you're questioning things, then it's not going to help you, so... You know, I, got up. I probably said sorry to remark when we come off, but that's the way it is. You know, you
0: don't let anybody up. That final with Ronnie Baxter is obviously, you know, it's one of the, the iconic games from, from the history of the world match play. And obviously that 1-2-5 that out is, you know, stuff of legend. And you can see watching back, there's a real smile on your face after that, that treble 15 went in. Had you done that shot before in tournaments?
1: No, I did it afterwards to, to Ted have up in, in Scotland, but no. No, I can honestly say I remember thinking, if I go for the 25, I'm too nervous, I might miss the 25. If I go for the 15, then at least, least I hit a 15, I need treble 20 in the ball. And I hit the treble 15, and then it threw me because I didn't win to. And all of a sudden I thought, oh, I've got 80. And I looked at double chop and I thought, well, that's the biggest target. So the smoke was, this will hurt him. And, you know, I think it was the first time double-double out was used on TV, especially in a major match, and now everybody uses it. But, yeah, the smirk was that this will hurt you, and it did. And he never got another double at the from there on you.
0: And you gave it a massive celebration after that finish as well. Was that, you know, you knew that that had basically won you the title?
1: Yeah, well, I was getting a lot of stick from his cable down at the front, um... In my wife and kids were there, they were right up in the balconies. They never never come near the front, didn't want them on TV. Um, yeah, and it, it was at him and at them because they were giving me so much stick for the whole of them, you know, I thinking, you know, what's going on. But the fair, fair play, Ronnie, he was an extremely good player. He just beaten Phil Taylor, so, he, you know, he was on a high and he was a tough player to drag back because I was behind at one time. But once I took that out, I actually, when I walked past him, I... I I looked at him and I said, I've got gotcha. Without moving my lips, I said, I've got gotcha. I, I did have him. You know, that, that messed him up. And you know, that was my
0: trophy. You know, obviously that one, two, five in many ways is sort of the sort of trick shot that you might see on an exhibition. And I remember reading in Ned Bolting's book a, a little while ago, he was talking about you and a trick you used to do where you used to catch darts in, in mid-air. Yeah. How did you work out that you could do that?
1: I had very fast hands. <laughs> <laughs> Extremely fast hands. Uh, it started off one day, uh, this bloke said to me about something. And I said, no, I've got fast hands. And he, uh, I said, I can catch a dart. So of could his head to get it. So I stood by the dart. Well, he chucked the dart. He obviously didn't try it hard. He threw it normally, and I caught it. And it kind of word went around. And then the first time I did it in front of a lot of people was in Ireland. Um, and Eric walked up, just come and show these Guinness bugs. I and mean, there kind of glided the dart in, and so I caught all three of Eric's darts. And uh, they, they, they were astounded, they couldn't believe it. And that's how it, how it came around. And uh, yeah, I could catch it, and I did it, it was a party trick I used to do all the time. A couple of times, you know, got a dart in the, in the hand a little bit, in the palm of the hand, but most of the time, caught them cleanly. Mm. And uh, yeah, I mean, it. it the trouble is then I see people trying to do it and and, and (laughs) getting stabbed all over the place Um, but yeah it was a nice party trick especially after an exhibition I didn't know Ned had put that in his book funny
0: yeah I mean there's a bit in there as well where he says that one time Jocky Wilson actually just lobbed the dart at you over arm and it stabbed you so
1: yeah Jocky I I, I love the guy Uh, when he was when he was sober he was the nicest guy you'll ever meet and he did something for my son Ryan Ryan loved Jockey when he was a little kid. When we first started playing at Blackball when Jockey knocked on the door one morning and walked in and gave Ryan a massive bag of flight stems, signed photograph, set of darts, and, uh, and just rubbed it, forget it, rubbed his little blonde head, and went, "Be yeah, Ryan," and he, he walked off. And uh, you know, you remember things like that. Um, you know, when he had a drink problem, sometimes he could be a bit rough around the edges, but. Um, no, an absolute unbelievable talent. Um, didn't win nowhere near as many tournaments as he should have done. But you know, you need characters in sport, and he was a, a massive character. And, a, and I see the nice bits of Jockey Wilson. I. But he, that the dart happened was actually when we were in Ireland the time, and I've shown some other people, and Eric come up, and Jockey walked off the got off the stall and walked up. He said, catch this your neck <laughs> through it and and got me in the stomach. And uh, within four seconds, I had a white shirt on, there was blood everywhere. Uh, I got home, had to go to the doctor's because it pierced my stomach wall, and I was on antibiotics for two weeks. (laughs) 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 I mean, he couldn't stop apologising, he didn't realise what he'd done at the time, you know, it was just something, and everybody laughed at the time, but it was actually quite a serious thing he'd done. Mm -hmm. And when I told my local doctor, I mean, I've known for donkey's years uh, and I remember Jeremy Spur just looking at me shaking his head <laughs> when I called him uh, but yeah you know things happen and uh, you know, we had some laughs back then you know you had to because it was, it was quite
0: hard work <laughs> obviously that world match play was a, a great moment did you feel the pressure when you went back to Blackpool the following year as the defending champion
1: I, I don't think so I think I was still world number one coming I was world number one still coming into it so I'd been world number one for something like 23 months I think only Phil Taylor and Michael Van Gerwen had beaten. Oh, that people will ever be beaten. Um, so I'm still coming in thinking, well, I'm the world number one. I've won numerous tournaments coming in. They Saskatoon again for the third year on the trot. So uh, I'm thinking, you know, I, I just knuckled down. I didn't play my best darts winning that. I just got lucky at the right time. Through That's what I keep telling, especially my son. You know, you've only got to throw the right legs at the right time, and you you can play them different and win matches. You want to call when I saw on TV all the time. You grind a result out. You know, Dennis she was great at grind a result out. John Lowe was. You know, there's lots of players that were great, uh, and that's what I did. I, I ground every match. I don't think I won any of those matches easy in that match play, but I just ground the results out. And walked away with the title
0: And when that winning dart went in against Peter Manley How did the, the two title wins compare?
1: Uh, the first one was, was so much better Because Roy Baxter was a BDO player And it would have hurt us big time If he'd have won that Because we we're saying we're the best in the world Then all of a sudden they'd turn around and say Well you ain't because our, our bloke Who ain't even world number one in our system Beat, beat everybody So that one, was, there was all pressure on me Winning that Um, I remember Dick Alex as I was walking down to go on the stage as I walked past him he went right I went right he went please win (laughs) that's what Dick Alex said to me on that first one so the second one there weren't as much pressure but obviously there's still the pressure there if you want to win the event and and take the money out
0: Hmm. and if someone had said to you you know the day after that 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 world match play was going to be the last senior title you won in the PDC would you have believed him?
1: at the time no Absolutely not. Um, you know, it, it, you're coming out of that. I, I, I won the Danish Open two weeks after that um, to, you know, that was when the court case had finished, so that, you know, the Danish Open actually put me in the World Masters. Um, that, But um, what happened was I had uh, serious knee problems and I had to have a cartilage operation. Um, and instead of rehabilitating properly, uh, I still kept playing, and um, it caused problems with my right. That was on my left knee. It caused problems with the right knee then, um, and which had always been a problem as well. Um, and my throat changed because I had to stand more upright to spread my weight. And then I had an operation on my right knee within eight months of the left one, and then I had to go back and have the another eight or nine months later. I had to go and have the left one done again. Because um, I hadn't rehabilitated properly, so from 2000 being number one, I, I plummeted down the rankings, and um, then I come to the decision at the Reebok. I 2004. Um, I'd lost to uh, David Platt, and I would have, he might have been in the match play, but I didn't deserve to be there. I were not playing well enough. I couldn't beat anybody. I couldn't even beat my wife at dancing. It was just a massive problem, and I because I was standing upright, my throat had changed a little bit. Um, I twanged a pinned it in my shoulder trying to push the dart in Wales one day. Um, and it was, I walked out of the toilet that next morning at the Reebok, and Ryan was the, the little blonde head fella there. And I gave him the darts and said I'd never throw him again. And uh, I never did. No, sorry, I, I threw him once more. That was in Vegas in the qualifiers. Um, and that was only because Matt Porter then, who just joined the PDC, just joined us. The- um the ceo he come out with me we went out a day early because we could get in premier economy and uh, i don't want to admit we went on the piss that night and we had a magnificent time and we won loads of money on the roulette table and we had a great time and uh he said to me uh, you're playing last today i said no nah, i'm not going to play in them and uh, i said what's the time he said nine o'clock in the morning when you're having a laugh he said i'm your manager at the day it's the true story. He said, I'm your manager today. Go and get showered. Meet you down here in half an hour. So I went up, got showered, went over. I played in that first qualifier, who lost to an up coming young man at the time called Wisner. And I'd beaten Bob Anderson, Peter Evans, <laughs> before, um, but it, it was too much for me. And that was the last time that I threw competitive darts.
0: Gone from you know the highs of being world number one, being one of the very few to, to retain a PDC major. And, you know, you come across, you know, you in your prime, you were very confident. Did, you know, the issues with your knee and changing your throw and losing on a regular basis, did that affect you mentally?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yes, of course it does. Yeah, that's why I, I thought, you know, the, the thing about darts for me, it was a business. If I couldn't, if I was, you know, at the end of the year or at the end of the week, if the, if the bottom line was in the red, then you have to do something about it. It's got to be in the black. Um, and it kept being in the red every weekend, so it was no I ain't doing this no more and I, and I packed it up there and then it was a business so it was actually quite easy to go no I'm walking um, and that was at the time when Rory Hopkins from Sky gave me a, a, a chance to do some commentary which I didn't up I thought shit out of it at the time and then Barry Hearn come on board and he asked me for a meeting uh, and he said right you shit at darts come and work for me That's that works as well
0: you know, off the hockey, you've been you know incredibly busy, and you've had a, a variety of you know roles over the years and, and stuff. But I know for a time you were you were Colin Lloyd's manager. How was that? You know, how was that side of the, the sport? Well,
1: it was actually good in those days. I met Colin at the Essex Open. Uh, he got into a bit of a, a brawl with someone, and um, you know I needed a practice partner, so we brought him home from there. And um, I said, look, you know, why don't you start practicing with me? Because you're a good player. So, uh, at the time, he wasn't winning anything. And so he started practicing with me. And I, I was still playing well at the time. And he that sharpened him up. And he just improved and improved and improved. And then when I had my brockies, uh, and then he started winning. And then, you know, he we, we used to come around with me. We used to share rooms together. He used to drive him about everywhere. Mm. Um, and then, you know, he, he went on and won what he did. Um, and deserved every bit of it as well. He was a great player. Mm.
0: And obviously, as a PDC director, you were, you know, one of the influential people behind the, the change to the Pro Tours and move out of the leisure centres and stuff. What would you say was your, you know, what would you say is your proudest achievement? Yeah, the
1: Pro Tours, yeah, they're totally down to me. If anybody said they didn't do them they're liars. Um, no, the Pro Tours were down, totally down to me. i put them all together. What were we going to do? I took it to the board of directors. Um, and I was very aggressive in the meeting, so if you ever talk to uh, Edward Lowy, it's called Rod's Rent meeting, and I told him what I wanted, uh, get us out of the holy camps into uh, sports halls, I want all these dartboard setups made, I want to do this, I want to do that, and um, the next day when Barry Hearn was summing up everybody's proposals, presentations, and I thought he, he, they hadn't taken me serious, and then he lastly went... Oh, and, and uh, with regard to your presentation, but we totally agree, go ahead and do it. Uh, and that was when, you know, we got 20 events at £20,000 a time. And then uh, it went on from there with the Challenge Tour that I brought in, the Youth Tour I brought in. So, uh, you know, we had a, a great set But the Pro Tours, yeah, totally down to me. And that's my proudest moment as being the director.
0: Mm. And it must give you immense pride as well, the way that the PDC have been able to to carry on this year and and carry on playing the Pro Tours and stuff behind closed doors.
1: Absolutely. I mean, Matt Porter and all his staff, you know, Dave Allen and Hayley Scott were the first two to help Matt out when he becomes CEO. You know, they've they've been relentless in their work right from back then. Um, And all this new staff he's got now, you know, credit to them all to, to get that all going. But, you know, a lot of credit's got to go to Barry Hearn because... You know, when we were making money, we've got to put it away. We've got to put it away and just anything happens. And it happened. No one ever see this happening. But it happened. And so now, we don't have to lower the prize money. If this went on for two or three years, then we've seriously got to look at lowering the prize money. That's obvious. But at the moment, the prize money's staying the same. And, you know, that's credit to how good a businessman he is and how the, the board of directors have worked with him and obviously Matt and his staff. But the financial side of it, it's totally down to batter, you know, that side of things. He's proven right here and now in the sports, and even with Eddie now with boxing, the sports that they have uh, operated, they've operated right because they've not had a lot of prize money.
0: One other thing is obviously that the, the commentary. So obviously, you know, you said you didn't think you were particularly good at it. What, what's been the biggest highlight behind the commentary booth for you over the years?
1: I, I, I think it's all been. I mean, working with Sid and Dave and John Quinn was an absolute joy. Um, I love Sid, got on so well with him and and Dave Lanning especially, I mean, um, gentlemen, total gentle gentlemen, and um, you know, and then going on from there, Stuart Pike is a very personal friend of mine now, uh, lovely guys, and they just give you, they just said to me at the time, don't try and, you're the pundit, just do what you can see, don't do anything else, don't try and be the commentator, and that's all I did. You know, they threw to me in separate things, and and that was it. And yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it, but it's it's perhaps I'm on my way now, and and, you know, I don't do nowhere near as many days, obviously, uh, which suits me because I'm I'm semi retired now, and you know, looking to retire in three years' time when my my agreement with Mr. Hearn comes up. And I'm looking forward to retirement uh, with my grandchildren and you know, and uh, spending more winters out in Spain so my arthritis in my knees don't hurt so much.
0: Mm Now obviously your son a couple of years ago picked up a, a PDC tour card, I mean he, he must have grown up with it around you and obviously you mentioned that the incident with jockey and stuff, did you encourage him to, to pursue darts, was that something he wanted to do? Absolutely not, he didn't
1: start trying darts till about 6-7 six, six, years ago, yeah. uh, no he never was a dart player, picked them up and then I was going to Q school, he says can I come with you, yeah, can I play, what do you want to play for? And he nearly got his cue card, and that was at the time when I started up the Challenge Tour. So he started on the Challenge Tour and then won his Tour card. He's a super player. He just gets to work out the the concentration side of it, you know, and forgetting that he's just lost a leg and missed doubles. Uh, But the proudest moment was, you know, we're at the Grand Slam at the moment, but last year's Grand Slam. You know, I worked for William Hill as well, and I tipped him to come out of that group. I tipped him to beat uh, Danny Knoppert, and he did, and to come out of the group, and he did, and it was a very proud moment for me to see, you know, my son, uh, any father will understand that you'd rather see one of your children do better than you, you get more enjoyment out of watching your children do something than you would ever do get the enjoyment out of yourself, and, and watching him do that, and, and my other two children, I mean my daughter was an ice skater and she, you know, her team won events, um, she actually won a gold medal for England, many years ago, which was great. And now my, my eldest son is a computer expert and builds apps and what have you. Um, so, it, it, you know, it's, it made me all proud in different ways. But Ryan, I suppose, especially because he got up there, you know, on a big stage on TV uh, and handled it. But when he when he got his tour card, we had some problems. And so, um, you know, he lost his two, tour card two years later, which you know couldn't be helped. So I won't go into anything more than that because we're a very private family. But, um, but now he's on the mend. He's he actually popped in today um, just to say hello at distance, to be quite honest, um, But, um, you know, he's on, he's on the up. You know? yeah. So we're, we're looking forward to Q School and him getting his tour card
0: back. Just a last couple of things from me. Obviously, about two years now since Tommy Cox passed away, and obviously he was someone you were very close to and you'd known for, for a very long period of time. So what would you say his, his impact on the sport was and the way he should be remembered?
1: here without Tommy Cox. About that, that's the end of that story. He, he, was, he was that stubborn, he was bombastic. He didn't put up with any crap and that was the way it had to be, you know, and he did he even mortgaged his own house to help fund the court case. You know, he put every single inch of his, everything into it and the PVC would not be there. Today, if it hadn't been for Tommy Cox and Dick Alex, to be quite honest, you know, but, but Tommy especially, Dick was the calm one Tommy was the aggressive one, and you never mess with Tommy.
0: And it was only a couple of months after that that you were you were inducted to the PDC Hall of Fame. So it must have been a you know a nice moment for you, but a, a sad one that he wasn't there to to share that with you.
1: Believe it or not, I thought I should have been put in there uh, before a lot more people, but that's how it goes. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, well, it was, yeah, and I had some friends there at the, at the, at the horse dinner. I didn't know it was coming. Uh, and I didn't, Max said, you must have. I no, I thought you'd forgot all about me and I was going to retire and stick it up your ass type of thing. But um, no, it was, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a nice moment. And a lot of people come up to me afterwards, a lot of players, um, and, you know, especially younger players, and said, uh, you know, just like, thank you, and you deserved it, which,
0: which was nice. Something I want to uh, wrap up with, obviously, at the moment, one of the, the big talking points has been, you know, James Wade's comments recently that the standard at the moment isn't, isn't what it was in the past. What do, you, what do you make of it, and what do you make of the standard oh, today? Uh,
1: absolutely load of rubbish. You know, there's people go in and out. How can you say that? Michael Smith, you know, he's, he's had three tonne-plus averages in his... Um, if the standard's not that good, then James Wade will go on and win his tournament, will the do you know what I mean? <laughs> it, it's, it's something that you... Sometimes when a player comes off stage and you still got the adrenaline running, you know, you have to take some things that some people say with a pinch of salt and did he mean to say it in that way? Do you know what I mean? I mean, I didn't actually listen to it, but James has been a great player, you know, for a long, long time, won a lot of majors, and that proves that he is. And if he, if he thinks that he's winning games because the standard's not too good, then he's, then he's actually demeaning his standard. Do you know what I mean? I mean, mm-hmm. he's, he's shooting 100 averages now, where he never used to. So, no, I don't think the standards have dropped. You know, some people go, you know, in and out of form. Of course they're going to. Everybody in their career will do that. But, no, I don't think the standards uh, are gone down at all.
0: Well, thank you very much for your time today, Rod. I really do appreciate it, and it's been fascinating looking back on your career with you. <laughs>